Chapter Two of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: A Tryout. To tell the truth, to blurt out nothing but the truth to everyone and on every occasion for three whole weeks—that's what Bob had contracted to do. From the point of view of the Commodore and the others, the man who tried to fill this contract would certainly be shot or electrocuted, or ridden out of town on a rail, or receive a coat of tar and feathers. And Bob had such a wide circle of friends, too, which would make his task the harder. The handsome dog was popular. He was asked everywhere that was anywhere, and he went, too. He would certainly get his. The jovial Commodore was delighted. He would have a whole lot of fun at Bob's expense. Wasn't the latter the big boob, though? And wouldn't he be put through his paces? Really, it promised to be delicious. The Commodore and the others went along with Bob just for a little try-out. At first nothing especially interesting happened. They walked without meeting anyone they were acquainted with. Transients! Transients! Where did they all come from? Once on their progress down the avenue the hopes of Bob's friends rose high. A car they knew got held up on a side street not far away from them. It was a gorgeous car and it had a gorgeous occupant, but a grocery wagon was between them and it. The Commodore warbled blithely, "'Come on, Bob! Time for a word or two. But handsome Bob shook his head. "'The even tenor of his way,' he quoted. "'I don't ordinarily go popping in and out between wheels like a rabbit. I'm not looking to commit suicide.' "'Oh, I only wanted to say how do you do,' retorted the Commodore rather sulkily or, may I tango with you at tea this afternoon, Mrs. Ralston? Or observe, how young she looks today, eh, Bob? murmured that young gentleman suspiciously. Artful, artful! Clarence poked the Commodore in the ribs. Sly old sea-dog! Well, let's move on, yawned Dickie. Nothing doing here. Wait! the Commodore had an idea. Hi! you young grocery lad! Back up a little, will you? What for? said the boy, aggressive at once. Babes are born in New York with chips on their shoulders. "'As a matter of trifling accommodation, that is all,' answered the Commodore sweetly. "'On the other side of you is a stately car, and we would hold conversation with—'Ah, Guan! Guess I got as much right to the street as it has.' And as a display of his rights, he even touched up his horse a few inches, to intervene more thoroughly. "'Perhaps now for half a dollar?' began the Commodore, more insinuatingly. Then he groaned. Too late. The policeman had lifted the ban. The stately car turned into the avenue, and was swallowed up amid a myriad of more or less imposing vehicles. They had, however, received a bow from the occupant. That was all there had been opportunity for. Incidentally, the small boy had bestowed upon them his parting compliments. "'Smart old guy! You think you's—' The rest was jumbled up or lost in the usual cacophony of the thoroughfare. "'Too bad,' murmured the Commodore. "'But still these three weeks are young.' Three weeks,' observed Dickie. "'Sounds like plagiarism.' "'Oh, Bob won't have that kind of a three weeks,' snickered Clarence. "'Bob's will be an expurgated edition,' from the Commodore, recovering his spirits. "'Maybe we ought to make it four. Three will do,' said Bob, who wasn't enjoying this chafing. Everyone they approached he now eyed apprehensively but he was a joy-giver, if not receiver, for his tall, handsome figure attracted many admiring glances. His striking head with its blond curls, they weren't exactly curls, 
only his hair wasn't straight, but clung rather wavy-like to the bold contour of his head, his careless stride, and that general effect of young masculinity, all this caused sundry humble feminine hearts to go pit-a-pat. Bob's progress, however, was generally followed by pit-a-pats from shop-girls and bonnet-bearers, especially at the noon-hour. Then Bob seemed to these humble toilers like dessert after hard-boiled eggs, stale sandwiches and pickles. But Bob was quite unaware of any approving glances cast after him. He was thinking, and thinking hard. He wasn't so sanguine now as he had been when he had left the club. What might have happened at that street corner appealed to him with sudden poignant force. Mrs. Ralston was of the creme de la creme. She was determined to stay young. She pretended to be thirty years or so younger than she was. In fact, she was rather a ridiculous old lady who found it hard to conceal her age. Now, what if the Commodore had found opportunity to ask that awful question? Bob could have made only one reply and told the truth. The largeness of his contract was becoming more apparent to him. He began to see himself now from Dan's standpoint. Incidentally, he was beginning to develop a great dislike for that genial land mariner. "'How about the Waldorf?' They had paused at the corner of 34th Street. "'May find someone there,' suggested Clarence. "'In Peekaboo Alley,' scornfully, from Dickie. "'Oh, I heard there was a concert or something upstairs,' said Clarence. "'In that you've got to be introduced room, and some of the real people have to walk through to get to it.' Accordingly, they entered the Waldorf, and the Commodore hustled them up and down and around, without, however, their encountering a single real person. There were only people present, loads of them, not from somewhere, but from everywhere. They did the circuit several times, still without catching sight of a real person. Phew! This is a lonesome place, breathed the Commodore at last. Let's depart, disgustedly, from Clarence. Apologize for steering you into these barren wastes. What's your hurry? said Bob, with a little more bravado. Then, suddenly, he forgot about those other three. His entranced gaze became focused on one. He saw only her. Ha! The Commodore's quick glance, following Bob's, caught sight, too, of that wonderful face in the distance, the stunning, glowing young figure, that regal dream of just-butted girlhood, that superb vision in a lovely afternoon gown. She was followed by one or two others. One could only imagine her leading. There would, of course, always be several at either side, and quite a number dangling behind. Her lips were like the red rosebuds that swung negligently from her hand as she floated through the crowd. Her eyes suggested veiled dreams amid the confusion and hubbub of a topsy-turvy world. She was like something rhythmically precipitated amid chaos. A faraway impression of a smile played around the corners of her proud lips. The Commodore precipitated himself in her direction. Bob put out a hand, as if to grasp him by the coat-tails, but the other was already beyond reach, and Bob's hand fell to his side. He stood passive. That was his part. Only he wasn't passive inwardly. His heart was beating wildly. He could imagine himself with her and them, those others in her train, and the conversation that would ensue, for he had no doubt of the Commodore's intentions. Dan was adept at rounding up people. Bob could see himself at a table, participating in the conversation, prepared conversation, some of it. He could imagine the Commodore leading little rivulets of talk into certain channels for his benefit. 
Dan would see to it that they would ask him, Bob, questions, embarrassing ones. That advice Dad had given him weighed on Bob like a nightmare. Suppose, ghastly thought, truth compelled him ever to speak of that, and to her. A shiver ran down Bob's backbone. Nearer she drew, nearer. Bob gazed as if fascinated, full of rapturous paradoxical dread. Now the Commodore was almost upon her when, ah, what was that? An open elevator? People going in. She, too. Those with her. Yes. Click. A closed door. The radiant vision had vanished. Was going upward. Bob breathed again. Think of being even paradoxically glad at witnessing her disappear. Bob ceased now to think. Stood as in a trance. Why do people go to concerts? said the Commodore in aggrieved tones. Some queen, that. And got the rocks. Or stocks. From Dickie. Owns about three of those railroads that are going a-begging nowadays. "'Wake up, Bobby!' someone now addressed that abstracted individual. Bob shook himself. "'Old friend of yours, Miss Gwendolyn Gerald, I believe?' said the Commodore significantly. "'Yes, I've known Miss Gerald for some time,' said Bob coldly. "'Known for some time,' mimicked the Commodore. "'Phlegmatic dog. Well, what shall we do now?' "'Hang around until the concert's over?' suggested Dickie. "'Hang around nothing,' said the Commodore. "'It's one of those classical hijinks,' disgustedly. "'Last so late the sufferers haven't time for anything after it's over. "'Just enough energy left to stagger to their cars and fall over in a comatose condition. "'Suppose we could go to the bar?' "'Naughty, naughty,' a sprightly voice interrupted. "'The Commodore wheeled. "'Mrs. Ralston!' he exclaimed gladly. It was the gorgeous lady of the gorgeous car. "'Just finishing my shopping and thought I'd have a look in here,' she said vivaciously. "'Concert, I suppose?' from the Commodore, jubilantly. "'Yes, Debussy. Don't you adore Debussy?' with schoolgirlish enthusiasm. Though almost sixty, she had the manners of a just-come-out. "'Nothing like it,' lied the Commodore. "'Ah, then you too are a modern,' gushed the lady. "'I'm so advanced,' said the Commodore. "'I can't keep up with myself,' they laughed. "'Ah, silly man,' said the lady's eyes. Bob gazed at her and the Commodore enviously. "'Oh, to be able once more to prevaricate like that!' The Commodore had never heard Debussy in his life. Ragtime and merry hornpipes were his limits. And Mrs. Ralston was going to the concert, it is true. But to hear the music? Ah, no!' Her box was a fashionable rendezvous, and from it she could study modernity in hats. Therein, at least, she was a modern of the moderns. She was so advanced, the styles had fairly to trot, or turkey-trot, to keep up with her. Well, she said, with that approving glance women usually bestowed upon Bob, I suppose I mustn't detain you busy people after that remark I overheard. Oh, don't hurry, said the Commodore hastily. Between old friends— but I say, by Jove, you are looking well. Never saw you looking so young and charming. Never! It was rather crudely done, but the Commodore could say things more bluntly than other people, and get away with them. He was rather a privileged character. Bob began to breathe hard, having a foretaste of what was to follow. And Mrs. Willie Ralston was Miss Gwendolen Gerald's aunt. No doubt that young lady was up in her aunt's box at this moment. Never! repeated the Commodore. Eh, Bob? Doesn't look a day over thirty, with a jovial, free-hearted sailor laugh. 
Does she now? It had come, that first test. And the question had to be answered. The lady was looking at Bob. They were all waiting. A fraction of a second or so, which seemed like a geological epoch. Bob hesitated. He had to reply, and yet, being a gentleman, how could he? No matter what it cost him, he would simply have to lie like a gentleman. He— Suddenly an idea shot through his befuddled brain. Maybe Mrs. Ralston wouldn't know what he said, if he— She had been numerous times to France, of course, but she was not mentally a heavyweight. Languages might not be her fort. Presumably she had all she could do to chatter in English. Bob didn't know much French himself. He would take a chance on her, however. He made a bow which was Chesterfieldian, and incidentally made answer, rattling it off, in French, with the swiftness of a boulevardier. Il m'en font dire que, vraiment, Madame Rolston, pareil à si âgé qu'elle I am obliged to say that Mrs. Ralston appears as old as she is. Then he straightened, as if he had just delivered a stunning compliment. Merci, the lady smiled. She also beamed. How well you speak French, Mr. Bennett! The Commodore nearly exploded. He understood French. Bob expanded, beginning to breathe freely once more. Language of courtiers and diplomats, he mumbled. Mrs. Ralston shook an admonishing finger at him. Flatterer, she said, and departed. Whereupon the Commodore leaned weakly against Dickie while Clarence sank into a chair. First round for Bob! The Commodore was the first to recover. His voice was reproachful. Was that quite fair? That parley-vous business? I don't know about its being allowed. Why not? Calmly from Bob. Is truth confined to one tongue? But what about that even tenor of your way? fenced the Commodore. You don't, as a usual thing, go around parley-vooing. What about the even tenor of your ways? retorted Bob. Nothing said about that when we— no but how can i go the even tenor if you don't go yours hm said the commodore don't you see it's not the even tenor persisted bob but it's your fault if it isn't some logic in that observed clarence maybe we have been a bit too previous conceded the commodore that isn't precisely the adjective i would use returned bob he found himself thinking more clearly now they had all, perhaps, been stepping rather lightly when they had left the club. He should have thought of this before. But Bob's brain moved rather slowly sometimes, and the others had been too bent on having a good time to consider all the ethics of the case. They showed themselves fair-minded enough now, however. "'Bob's right,' said the Commodore sorrowfully. "'Suppose we've got to eliminate ourselves from his agreeable company for the next three weeks, unless we just naturally happen to meet.' We'll miss a lot of fun, but I guess it's just got to be. What about that parley-vooing business, though, Bob? That's got to be eliminated, too. From Dickie. Why, he might tell the truth in Chinese. All right, fellows, said Bob shortly. You quit tagging, and I'll talk United States. Good. I'm off, said the Commodore, and he went. The others followed. Bob was left alone. He found the solitude blessed, and began to have hopes once more. Why, he might even be permitted to enjoy a real lonely three weeks, now that he had got rid of that trio. He drew out a cigar and began to tell himself he was enjoying himself when— "'Mr. Robert Bennett!' The voice of a page smote the air. It broke into his reflections like a shock. "'Mr. Bennett!' 
again bawled the voice. For the moment Bob was tempted to let him slip by, but conscience wouldn't let him. He lifted a finger. "'Message for Mr. Bennett,' said the urchin. Bob took it. He experienced forebodings, as he saw the dainty card and inscription. He read it, then he groaned. Would Mr. Robert Bennett join Mrs. Ralston's house-party at Tonkton? There were a few more words in that impulsive lady's characteristic vivacious style, and then there were two words in another handwriting that he knew. Will you? That will you wasn't signed. Bob stared at it. Would he? He had to. He was in honour bound, because ordinarily he would have accepted with alacrity. But a house-party for him, under present circumstances, he would be a merry guest. Ye gods and little fishes, and then some! He gave a hollow laugh, while the urchin gazed at him sympathetically. Evidently the gentleman had received bad news. End of chapter 2